Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Rothman. I am an employee benefits attorney and shareholder in the Cleveland office of Ogletree Deacons. I thank you for joining us today uh, for the Ogletree Deacons podcast. Today, I'm, I'm going to be kicking off our Breaking Down Benefits podcast series. And we're going to be covering a whole variety of employee benefit topics over the course of this program. And I really do believe that this program is going to be a great program, whether you're a 30-year experienced benefit professional or you're new to the benefit uh, practice. Uh, we've got some great things that we're going to be talking about, whether it's specific to COBRA, HIPAA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the Internal Revenue Code, all kinds of good stuff. So like I said, I think that there's going to be value for those of you who are very experienced and for those of you who are newbies. Please note that, you know, we're, we're not technically giving you legal advice, but uh, we're going to be just talking about some of the experiences that we have in talking with employers with respect to their benefit plans. So a lot of the conversations that we're going to have over the course of this podcast are going to be kind of real world experiences and, and things that we know that employers are facing with respect to their benefit plans. So uh, that is why I, I, I truly do believe that there will be a lot of value uh, whether or not you've been in the employee benefits world forever or you're, you're just starting out or you just want to get a, a, a basic education with respect to employee benefits. Today, we're going to be starting in the beginning. And, and what does that mean? Well, we're going to be starting with ERISA plan documents, ERISA summary plan descriptions, and even taking a step back and, and going over some of the plans that may or may not be subject to ERISA. Uh, that really is the starting point. And, and I feel that sometimes these areas get missed. Sometimes employers don't really think about them in great detail. And there are some considerations with respect to whether or not a benefit that you have may be subject to ERISA. So let's start with ERISA and ERISA uh, plan documents. Like I said, before we even get into the obligation to uh, uh, focus on ERISA plan documents, we need to analyze whether or not our benefits are subject to ERISA. And I feel that a lot of the time it's pretty obvious, you know, if we're a publicly traded company and we have a 401k plan or a group health plan, yeah, we're we're in the ERISA world. But I want to talk about five very specific types of benefits that may or may not be in the ERISA world, because in my experience, I've seen employers uh, either not face these items or, or not uh, properly analyze them. So the first area uh, is governmental plans. We don't have to talk about that in a whole lot of detail. I think that is a pretty obvious one, but there are some quasi-governmental entities that need to really know and understand if they are governmental or not, because there is that exception from ERISA. The second one I want to point out is church plans. And, And church plan status sometimes is very open and obvious. Uh, Once upon a time, I represented a diocese priest's pension plan. And it was it was fun because I used to go to committee meetings and there would be six priests and the diocese CFO. 
and the benefits were solely for priests. Pretty obvious that that was a church plan not subject to ERISA, also not subject to a number of code provisions. However, there are some entities out there that rely on the church plan exemption from ERISA, and, and, and it can get a little dicey, and we've seen some litigation with respect to that. Hospitals are the best example of an entity that may rely on the church plan exception, but as time goes by, if there's some kind of um, uh, kind of mergers with other entities or um, any kind of change in the status with the relationship with the church, they may fall out of that church plan exception. And then you have those additional ERISA burdens, some additional internal revenue code burdens. So church plans is another example. Third one I want to talk about, and this is something that's come up uh, because of the pandemic that we've been facing over the past year, and that is severance plans. Severance plans, depending on the design and the administration, may or may not be subject to ERISA. The magic phrase, and this came out of the Supreme Court decision, is that if the plan has is subject to an ongoing administrative scheme, then that plan is subject to ERISA. So let's you know break it, break this down in two easy examples. Say, for example, there's a severance program, and anybody who has an involuntary separation gets a two thousand dollar lump sum check, and that's it. In that situation, I think it's pretty fair to say that that program is not subject to an ongoing administrative scheme. Now, let's flip the switch and look at a severance program that has various eligibility requirements, different classes of employees getting different levels of benefits. The the cash award component of the severance is paid out over a stream of payments the employer retains discretion to bump that amount out up or to bump it down. There might be subsidized COBRA. There might be some outplacement benefits. There's a release requirement. There's some discretion to do some other things. You start hearing the bells and whistles that this program has, and that there's a very good chance that that would be deemed a program that has an ongoing administrative scheme. And what does that mean? Well, that means you're subject to ERISA and ERISA requires a plan document, a summary plan description, Form 5500. So for those of you with severance programs, for those of you who are thinking about or or have had voluntary separation plans or early retirement incentive programs, those programs may be subject to ERISA. So just keep that in the back of your mind as you're rolling out your severance plans or reevaluating your severance plans. You might say that it's not subject to ERISA, but just saying it's not subject to ERISA doesn't mean it's not subject to ERISA. It just means that you may have an ERISA compliance issue. So that was number three, severance. Number four is I I wanted to call out short-term disability benefits in a very specific sense. If you have a short-term disability program that the employer went out and got a group insurance policy and maybe they're paying the premiums, uh, you're, you're likely in the ERISA world. But what if your short-term disability program is simply wage continuation? Uh, Somebody goes out on leave, uh, maybe the employer determines disability. You you may even have a third party determining disability with respect to that type of program. And all that's being provided is just wage continuation. It's out of the general assets of the employer. It's just run through payroll. There is a specific payroll practice exception from ERISA that may apply to your short-term disability plan. So that is something to evaluate. The last one I wanted to point out is voluntary benefits. And voluntary benefits, the term voluntary can mean all kinds of different things. Uh, Sometimes I see employers say, yeah, we have voluntary benefits, but those benefits are essentially, employer went out and they got 
uh, group insurance policies for maybe disability, maybe life, maybe AD&D, things like that. They tell their employees, hey, we got this great program. We encourage you to enroll. Uh, we got a great deal for you. And they give them all the information for enrollment. In that type of situation, and I should take a step back, and, and also it's 100% paid by the employees. In that situation, sometimes I see employers say, well, it's just voluntary. It's not subject to ERISA. Uh, they can choose to enroll if they want. That's not how the ERISA voluntary exception works. There is a specific voluntary benefit exception to ERISA, but for that to apply, the employer really needs to be hands-off. They cannot be endorsing the program. Basically, all they are doing is allowing some vendor to come in and uh, provide information about the benefits. The limited involvement by the employer may simply just be the uh, premium withholding, but that's it. They're not telling their employees this is a great program. Um, so if you have, you know, I'm doing air quotes, voluntary benefits in the sense that employees are paying 100% of the premium, you're going to want to do that evaluation to see whether or not you're subject to ERISA or not. So those are the five items that I just wanted to point out today that may or may not be subject to ERISA. Governmental, maybe if you, if, if you identify as governmental, there's an exception. Um, but if you're quasi-governmental, you're going to have to be careful. Uh, church plans, properly identify your church plan status. Severance, ongoing administrative scheme is the key thing you're going to have to keep in mind. Short-term disability, uh, is it that payroll practice or not? And then those voluntary benefits, five key things for you to look at. So if you are subject to ERISA, the first thing we're going to talk about is the plan document requirement. And clearly, ERISA requires a plan document. And ERISA generally says that ERISA plans must be established and maintained pursuant to a written instrument. And I kind of noted this before, is that you can have an ERISA plan without having the formal plan document. It's just that you'll have an ERISA compliance perspective. Now, ERISA plans are kind of separated into two big worlds, I would say. You've got the pension or retirement world, and then you have the health and welfare world. The retirement plan world, I think for the most part, at least when plans are initially adopted, the plan document is typically well taken care of. Uh, the, the employer may go out to you know, someone like me, an attorney, to draft an individually designed plan. They may go out to a TPA and adopt the TPA's pre-approved plan documents, walking through what the benefits are going to be. But what happens as time goes by is that sometimes plan amendments are not properly dealt with. And it could be a plan amendment that is a required legal update, or it could be a plan amendment that is just a discretionary change that just wasn't properly addressed in the plan document. Uh, another area where this pops up as an issue is where an employer adopts, say, a 401k plan on the TPA's pre-approved plan document, and then down the road, they decide to make a change in, TP, in TPAs, and the new TPA says, well, we're going to put you on our pre-approved plan document. What I see sometimes is that something gets lost in translation, and there's, you know, the plan document at TPA number two doesn't really line up with plan document one, and we have some discrepancies between what the plan says and what we do. And that leads me to the next issue that pops up. And that is over time, administration doesn't exactly line up with our plan document. So we have to make sure that our plan documents really have everything that they legally need to have. 
Um, so it has information about who the fiduciary is, who the plan administrator is, what the administrator's responsibilities are, what the benefits are, what the eligibility provisions are, you know, the right to amend and terminate. There's all kinds of things that we would have in our plan documents. And then there's some best practices things to have in there as well. You know, the, the right to interpret um, our plan provisions, the discretion to make determinations. So there's a lot of legal things that we would put in there, but we just have to make sure that our plan documents have all the legal provisions in there um, and then also have the um, kind of the best practices things as well. Keep in mind that retirement plans also have the uh, EPCRS. So if there are issues with respect to our plan documents and they need to be addressed, there's a correction program so that we can fix things. Now on the welfare plan side of the world, there are a few considerations. The first one is, well, how many plans do we have? Uh, sometimes I see employers that their medical plan might be plan 501, their dental plan might be 502, vision 503, and next thing you know, we see that there's six, seven, eight, nine different ERISA plans, and if you have multiple ERISA plans, then you have multiple plan document requirements, and then multiple SPD requirements, and multiple form 5500 requirements. So what can employers do? Well, there's this concept called a wrap plan document, and, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard that. Uh, it's not a legal term, but it's more of a term of art where employers look to essentially merge all their welfare benefits into a single plan. So you have employer X welfare benefit plan, ERISA plan 501. I say ERISA plan 501 because all ERISA plans have to have a three-digit number. So what you do is, is you have this single plan, and for ERISA plan document purposes, the reason we call it a wrap and why we use this strategy is that for all of our various welfare benefits, our insurance carriers, our TPAs, our consultants will put together all kinds of documents. There's the policies, there's the certificates, there's the benefit booklets. And so what this wrap document does essentially is it lays out all the legal, for lack of a better term, stuff that needs to be in a plan document. Some of the things I mentioned before also might have a lot of the required disclosures for group health plans if you've got your group health plan as part of your welfare plan. And so you have all these uh, legal pieces that are in the formal plan document. Uh, also fills in the holes that might not be addressed from a plan perspective with those other documents, those certificates, those benefit booklets, et cetera. And then you incorporate all those documents into the wrap plan. And so you get this term wrap plan because essentially what you're doing is you're taking that formal document and essentially, and I'm doing air quotes, wrapping it around all those other documents. So you incorporate all the documents and then your plan document is that wrap plan document that's been put together plus all those various documents that um, you get from the carriers, the vendors, et cetera. Those are kind of the key pieces of information that I wanted to talk about with respect to plan documents. Before I talk about SPDs, I just want to mention cafeteria plans really quickly. Cafeteria plans are not ERISA plans, but they're, uh, they're, they're internal revenue code required documents. And so I say cafeteria plan, it could be referred to as a 125 plan, it could be referred to as a premium only plan, pop plan, uh, flexible benefit plan, they've got all kinds of names. But it all comes back to Section 125 of the code. And what we're talking about here is any benefits that are provided on a pre-tax, tax-favored basis needs to be addressed in, in, in your cafeteria plan. So what am I talking about here? Well, if you're allowing the pre-tax payment of 
your group health plan uh, or dental or vision, or if you have a health flexible spending account, or if you have a dependent care flexible spending account or pre-tax contributions to health savings accounts. Uh, those are the key items that we would typically see in a cafeteria plan. You need to have a cafeteria plan document to address those. There must be a plan document talking about pre-tax benefits. And it's very important because there's things like a status change events that need to be addressed in the plan document. Um, there are things with grace periods or carryovers for flexible spending accounts. So if you do not have a document that addresses pre-tax benefits associated with your welfare plans, uh, you need to take action. So now let's quickly talk about summary plan descriptions. We, we could do a whole podcast about summary plan descriptions, but I, I just want to hit some of the highlights. You know, the Department of Labor would say that uh, summary plan descriptions can, must contain numerous specific uh, pieces of information, and then it must be distributed to your plan participants. You don't, you don't necessarily distribute your plan document to everybody. It's that summary plan description. And the, the, the key thing to consider with respect to SPDs is that the Department of Labor would say that they must be both comprehensive and understandable. So you have to give all the information with respect to your plan, but you have to do it in a way that the average non-benefits attorney uh, would would be able to read it and understand. So, you know, ERISA attorneys, we speak our own language, we speak code, we speak ERISA, and sometimes forget, you know, the real world doesn't. So as we're drafting SPDs, we want to make sure that we're drafting them in a very understandable way. There are, like I said before, a number of mandatory disclosures, especially for group health plans. You know, there, there's there's HIPAA information, there's COBRA information, there's Affordable Care Act information. And then ERISA, you know, we have claims procedure, we have ERISA rights. So there's all kinds of things that need to be addressed. The timing of it and the updating of SPDs, that is where I see issues. If there's any change to an SPD, any change in the plan that would affect the SPD, a summary of material modifications or an SMM must be distributed. You generally have 210 days after the year in which the change is made, but just make sure those SMMs are being dealt with. Where I see issues is that regular update of the SPD. The starting point is that SPDs have to be updated and distributed every 10 years. However, 10 years usually isn't the bogey. It's usually five years because in the event there's any change that would require an SMM, you need to update and distribute your SPDs, incorporating all those SMMs every five years. Sometimes I see things like frozen uh, defined benefit pension plans where the SPDs haven't been updated in 15, 20 years because the benefits haven't changed. doesn't matter. You need to be issuing those every 10 years if there's been nothing affecting the SPD. And five years is usually what we're looking at. So keep in mind that requirement to issue updated SPDs. I mentioned RAP plan documents. We also issue sometimes, if it's the right uh, set of documents and it makes sense, RAP SPDs. And it's the same concept as wrap plan documents. What we do is take those benefit booklets, certificates, and create a basic document that has the required ERISA pieces, maybe the required disclosures that aren't found in those benefit booklets or certificates, uh, maybe fills in the holes about eligibility or when benefits are lost. And we create a wrap SPD. We incorporate those certificates and benefit booklets, and we have a compliant SPD. The last piece I just want to mention real quick is electronic media. Keep in mind that Department of Labor has very specific rules about issuing SPDs electronically. 
They've, the, the rules have been softened a little bit in the pension plan world, but in the welfare, welfare plan world, we're generally looking at distributing electronically only to those people who are either wired at work, so people like me who sit in front of a computer all day and have uh, an email account, or those who have consented. So if you don't have somebody who's a wired at work employee or somebody who's consented, you have to remember that you have to issue paper. So that was me for you know roughly 20 minutes talking about plan documents, FPDs, cafeteria plans, and 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 those specific five situations that you want to look at uh, for ERISA uh, plan purposes. There are a number of benefits that may or may not be subject to ERISA. So I I, I appreciate the the time that you spent with me. Like I said, the plan of attack going forward is to jump into very specific and discrete employee benefit topics so that in short bites you can hear about COBRA or HIPAA or wellness plans or, or things like that. So uh, I encourage you to, to sign up for our, our, our podcast so that you get regular updates with respect to new podcasts that are issued. And again, uh, I'm Jason Rothman. I thank you for your time and I look forward to uh, talking with you more. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.